You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, another episode of Lanyap Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Doug Stokes along with Greg Stokes. Wild week in the markets last week. Today's the 24th of October. Markets were strongly positive. They were up like 5% last week, but it's just been a complete roller coaster ride this year, mostly to the downside. But when you get weeks like that, it makes you feel a little bit more optimistic. We talked last week specifically around the expectation of recession. There's so much negative news out there to the point where market participants and forecasters have complete agreement that we're entering a phase of economic downturn, economic slowdown, et cetera, to the point where there is a CEO survey. I need to pick it up and put it to the show notes. But basically, there's a 100% chance, according to CEOs, of recession in 2023. So I think Bloomberg posted that. But anyway, we'll dig it up. And so with all the bearishness out there, I found one positive, and we can talk about it and maybe find a couple other anecdotes. But the McDonald's McRib is back, which for those that are fans of the McRib, that's great. You can go get your McRib for a limited time. But for a, a market participant, I think this is even more important. This goes back for 12 years. The S&P 500's return when the McRib is around on a daily basis is about double that than when it's not. And so for those that are looking for some sense of optimism around markets, then maybe that's a good one to have. You got anything on your side, Greg? Well, I saw that you can draw correlations like the McRib, for example, that the markets are positive when the McRib's around, but there's also negative random correlations that exist. Like, for example, when baseball teams from Philadelphia make it to the championship World Series, those tend to be years that are like indicative of market strife. So who knows what's going on? I can tell you this, I personally am going to skip out on the McRib probably. I've never had one, but I saw that they're also going to be phasing that out completely. They probably should. Right. (laughs) I mean, I guess the world's kind of going in another direction where whatever the McRib is comprised of is not on the top of people's lists anymore. But yeah, so I hope that the McRib correlation applies and not the Phillies in the World Series. I think the last time they were in the World Series was like 2008 or something like that. I don't know if this is just recency bias or if the world is really just moving at a tremendous pace right now, but it seems like there are so many different things going on. And where we are a year from now is truly anybody's guess. But usually what happens after these sorts of periods of volatility is the markets are up a year out. And that same thing goes for multiple years out, like we've talked about several times. But we need all the help we can get. And if the McRib is going to be it, then I guess I can kind of I'll go against my gut and start eating them or whatever. I just don't understand the level of confidence that people have around anything forecast related right now, because just look at the last two and a half years. How could you say anything in the future with any sort of confidence and say, okay, this is what's going to happen in six months or 12 months because of you know interest rates or inflation or whatever? Look at 2020, 2021, and 2022 and tell me that there's anybody out there that had anything close to how that really worked out. I mean, we had a global pandemic. We had the market drop by 35% in three weeks, followed by the fastest recovery on record, 
followed by a massive boom in 2021 that immediately stopped and turned into free fall in 2022. Nobody saw any of that coming. And now everybody coming out of the woodworks is so confident about what's going to happen next year. It's almost laughable that you have forecasters that will continue to put things out when they're just repeatedly wrong year in and year out. Also, when I see these periods too, where like there's obviously a lot of strife going on and there's so much confidence, like what I've learned is, so I think this is a quote from George Carlin. He said, if you want to know how stupid people are, look at the average person and, and I'm paraphrasing here, and 50% of those people are dumber than the average person out there. And I think that that what you're seeing nowadays is people get so worked up about any particular issue and now they have like social media and can amplify their voice or whatever. People take these incredibly rigid stances on all these issues that are at play nowadays. Like we went through the same period where people had tremendously strong views about COVID. Now you have one side or the other. I'm not taking a personal stance on that. But you see the same thing going on with the Ukraine now and the markets in general. If people make a prognostication in the markets, there's tremendously strong viewpoints on one side or the other. Right now, there's a tremendously strong viewpoint on the bearish side of things. And I think that over the last week, the markets have popped upwards 5%. And the same thing happened when the markets are at their peak. People are tremendously bullish. But the fact of the matter is, regardless of what the crowd says, and people who aren't really that intelligent are adding a whole lot of values, their voices are being amplified. Regardless of what the crowd says, if you just try to tune out the noise and try to take a reasonable, pragmatic viewpoint, I think that's going to prevail long term. Yeah. What's wrong with just saying, I don't know? Here's a wide range of expected outcomes and you know they have equal probability or maybe one has a higher probability than another, but just taking a firm stance on a relatively low probability event is how you blow yourself up. And you see it on the bearishness side now. We definitely saw it on the bullishness side last year with you know kind of the SPAC boom and and everything IPO boom that was occurring. Champ Chamath or whatever that guy's name was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's an incredible amount of bearishness right now, and I would just remind those people that are ultra bearish now have no ability to forecast compared to anybody else. Who would have thought interest rates and mortgages would be eight percent? Yeah, I remember talking to somebody earlier this year and looking at buying a house and we're doing some sensitivities around, you know, what they could afford. And, you know, on the low end, it was like a 3% rate and on the high end, it's like, you know, what if rates go to 5%? Let's see what it looks like there. It's like right. we would kill for 5% right now. Right. It is insane. And the same thing goes with the Ukraine. Like, who knows how that's all going to play out? But it's like the same people that were get all worked up about one issue are all worked up about that as well, too. So... Well, let's talk about just how difficult this period has been. I mean, we're going through 10 months of a lot of volatility and a lot of downward pressure. And I think the biggest impact, and you have some data to back this up, but the biggest impact from a, especially somebody that is near approaching retirement or in retirement has been on the bond side. The side of the portfolio that's there to really shelter from volatility is one that's been amplified. You brought something up that's really interesting. Why don't you talk through it? So Michael Gayed, who's a chartered financial analyst, posted on Twitter, this has been a horrendous year in the bond market, especially in the longer duration bond market. The way it works is when yields go up, the price of bonds go down. You can think about it this way. If you bought a 10-year treasury at the beginning of 2022, it was paying like half of a percent. 
you could buy that same treasury on the open market today at like over a 4% yield. So the price of your original, and you got locked in at the beginning of this year for the next 10 years, getting your half of a percent coupon, the price of your bond that you bought at the beginning of the year is substantially less to equal what is available on the market. That is especially amplified the further in time you get in terms of duration. If you have like a longer term bond, that might be down 30% or 40% in some instances. But this year is historically bad in the bond market. It's been a bad year in the stock market. Bad years in the stock market happen all the time. Unfortunately, it's just a part of the process. Like one out of every three or four years is a negative in the stock market. Bond market does not function like that. Usually, we have this graph that we show people about the historical variability in the bond markets. And they're going to have to revise that chart after this year. It's going to be substantially worse in the bond markets from a historical standpoint after this year. But Guyed specifically showed this year's bond market performance relative to the historical drawdowns in the stock market. And basically, the moral of the story is you've had, besides the Great Depression, which is, you know, the stock market was down 90%, the bigger drawdowns that have historically happened in the US stock market have been like down 50%, down 40%, et cetera. The bond market is not supposed to really function like that at all from a volatility standpoint. But this year, in the long-term US treasury market, the 20-plus year treasury market, year-to-date is down negative 42%. That's just unreal to think about. So that's what we were talking about. Who would have thought rates would go up, mortgage rates would have gone up to what they are today at the beginning of the year? It's off the charts volatility from a historical standpoint in that market and also the bond market. Yeah. If you think about why would the bond market not function like the stock markets, because the bond market has guaranteed payment of principles, especially if it's a government bond, then it's a guaranteed payment of principal backed by the government. So if it's a corporate bond, then if the corporation goes bankrupt, then that's at risk. But right, you're not worried about like the underlying asset. Like in a stock, a stock can go to zero because it's just a company. But in a bond, you're right. It's like you get your money back. So there shouldn't be a whole lot of variability unless you have like this monumental increase in rates, which is what's transpired. But from a portfolio standpoint, that same concept, if you look back at the last 100 years in the markets, and this is from Charlie Bolello, I'm just going to read this off, was this total return data going back to 1928, the number of years in which both the S&P 500 and the 10-year treasury were down, he lists off five, 1931, 1941, 1969, 2018, and 2022. And then he said the number of years in which both the S&P 500 and the 10-year treasury bond were down more than 10%, there's only one instance since 2022. There's all these data points that show that this is really an unprecedented sort of period of time and that stocks being down 25%. I think they got up close to down 28 or 30% or something like that at one point. And that happens, unfortunately. But as far as the bond market being down as much as it is simultaneously with stock market and just in terms of breadth of how far it's gone down, that's unprecedented. So, yeah, this is another piece on the stock side, which just makes it feel worse than it actually is. The year date return for the major indexes this is from Charles Schwab, SP 500, NASDAQ, and Russell 2000. Year to date return for the SP is down 21%, NASDAQ down 31%, Russell 2000, which is small caps, down 22%. But the average stock, these indexes are market cap weighted, meaning the biggest companies have the highest weighting in the index. So, S&P 500 is Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera, are the biggest companies. But the average company, if this was equal weighted and not market cap weighted, 
S&P 500, average companies down 34%. NASDAQ, the average companies down 48%. Russell 2000, the average companies down 47%. And so a lot of the pain that is felt on the stock side is worse than what's actually reflected by the indexes themselves. You know, you may own a position that's not a big weight in the index. It could be down, you know, 40, 50%. And that's what we're seeing in the markets as well. So equivalent level of pain in the stock market that you're experiencing in the bond market. The difference is that you expect that pain in the stock market. You don't really expect it when you're investing in bonds. Yeah. You know, it's another interesting thing about this period of time too, is like, okay, so this is actually a chart that Ian McMillan posted. This is like a normal, this sort of like boilerplate way that you should anticipate economic cycles and how you should invest your money accordingly, essentially. This is like just generic and as like a general guide as far as how to manage money in these sorts of cycles. But basically, it lists an expansion and a contraction in a business cycle. If there's a contraction, typically bonds increase in price at the outset is that money is like a flight to security and stocks go down and commodities go down. And same thing, commodities continue to go down. As you would expect, there's just demand destruction. And so like if you think about oil, for example, the price of oil should theoretically go down in a recession because less people are moving around and companies are producing less, less flights, et cetera. So normally in the beginning of a contraction, bonds increase in price, commodities go down, et cetera. So and what's happened and then eventually recovery, commodities pick up, stocks and bonds all go well together. What's happened in this case is that let's assume that we're in a beginning or midpoint in a contraction. We're certainly not, doesn't seem like things are expanding right now. But right now, the bonds have gone down in value, stocks have gone down in value, and commodities, strangely enough, at least the oil companies as a proxy, have been holding up quite well. So there hasn't been a fall off in the oil sector. What do you think about that? I think it's a good framework to think about how, what phase of the cycle we're in. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to get any sort of insight from that other than you know how to approach this from a long-term perspective. But really what this is saying is that if we're going to have any sort of recovery, first bonds would have to recover, then bonds and stocks, then followed by commodities. If you're following the Ian McMillan framework, we're sort of in that mid-cycle contraction in which stocks and bonds are down and commodities are starting to roll over, but hasn't really had the major major negative impact. Although I think commodities got bit up completely after Russia invaded Ukraine and that came down to earth slightly from there. But yeah, if you just ignore that, commodities are still in an up cycle from you know, 2020 through 2022. I don't think there's you know any sort of trading implication from that. It's just, you know, where are we in this cycle? It's probably, you know, late contraction area and we haven't experienced that recovery yet. One other component that we should touch on, and it's actually being announced now. So this episode is going to come out you know, a week or eight days from today. It's a major announcement at 1230, which is right now. It's 1230 from Merrick Garland, who's uh, attorney general related to, apparently related to China. And you've seen all the Chinese stocks that are very far down today. The Chinese Communist Party Congress, which occurs every five years, is going on right now or just concluding. Chairman Xi is unsurprisingly elected to another five-year term. And the U.S. is coming out with some restrictions on China, number one being 
related to distributions of semiconductors from U.S.-based companies or affiliates like Taiwan Semiconductor to China. And then number two, it, it appears there's going to be some news today on national security related to you know, China tech. And so be interesting to see what happens with China, but obviously the market's reacting negatively there. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to me that you can have companies like Alibaba and JD that are down 20% in a day and the US markets are positive. Yeah. So it's just crazy the separation between you know what's going on in China and in Europe and what's continuing to happen in the United States. I also find it is interesting just from a perspective of the United States that it's very newsworthy what's going on in the United Kingdom related to the prime minister, Liz Truss resigning. And then what's the name of this new guy that's going to take over anyway? They've got a new prime minister today. Yeah. Rishi Sunak. First Indian British guy. Yeah. Sunak. There was news about the British pound that almost was at parity with the US dollar. So Britain is like in the top 10 of countries in terms of GDP. But I'm curious, Doug, why do you think the United States and people from America, why is this making the news so much here? Why is Britain making the news so much here versus like Spain or France or Latin America? What do you think is the the common denominator? I don't know if there is one other than there are, you know, closest ally, them in Canada and most similar country um, in terms of the founding. But it's really interesting to me that when you have an economic downturn, one of the ways to combat an economic downturn, at least historically, has been to cut taxes and try to spur economic growth, cut interest rates, et cetera. And the UK is in a difficult situation because they have high inflation, higher inflation than we have in the US. And so what Liz Trust attempted to do was sort of combat a economic downturn with more inflationary policy when they already have heightened inflation. I think that really broke markets and broke confidence in her as uh, prime minister. But it really was surprising to me that something that's sort of pro-growth and is generally popular, you know, people don't want to be paying more in taxes, got met with such major backlash to the point where she had to resign. So, well, I don't know if it was that or if it was just that that caused so much strife in the markets. And then that was the sort of straw that broke the camel's back. Maybe the policies themselves were good from the standpoint of trying to spur growth, but the financial system couldn't take it. Yeah, which is interesting to me. I'd be interested to see what happens in the next you know, couple of months with UK as to whether that those markets have really been calmed down. Basically, the Bank of England had to intervene and buy some of these long dated, they call them gilts, but basically these government bonds issued by the United Kingdom in order to calm that market. But I'd be interested to see what happens there. I mean, you're seeing things breaking across the globe. Japan, the Japanese yen trades, I think it was 150 yen per dollar. Now it's started the year around 115. So major devaluation of that currency. The Chinese offshore currency, the yuan, has uh, devalued substantially, I think 7.3 now. I don't know where it started at the beginning of the year. You mentioned the pound got to near parity with the US dollar, which is insane. I remember at one point, the UK pound was two times the US dollar. So that just major devaluation of the currency. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the euro. I had a conversation with somebody that's a fund manager in Toronto last week, the Canadian dollar is 15% devalued against the US dollar this year. I just think it's a lot of the US policy is now being 
offshore because everything is so reliant upon U.S. Federal Reserve. So you have a strong or strong-ish U.S. economy where there's still economic growth, there's still low unemployment. We have, yes, inflation, and we're trying to combat that. But you have also weaker economies internationally that have to go off of U.S. Federal Reserve policy because we have the global reserve currency. So you have weaker economies in Europe and in Asia and a relatively stronger economy in the U.S. And what we're doing to combat a relatively strong economy to reduce inflation by raising rates, other countries are having to do that in lockstep, and it's really destroying their currencies in the process. Yeah, it's a wild world in the sense of domestically and internationally as well, too. It went like we've talked about several times, we're very fortunate to be located where we are in American. So the interesting thing about this period of time, too, is that Micron and other companies, et cetera, are reporting that they're slashing inventories because demand's going down. But you really just don't see that sort of, and we may be in a recession, but you just don't see it when you go out to restaurants and on planes. I saw that United Airlines posted their highest revenue quarter ever last quarter. So it's just a really interesting process. But I'll tell you one area that is experiencing disinflation or deflation is in Major League Baseball tickets. You can see that what I sent you from from SeatGeek. Yeah, this was the Yankees game. This is game four in the Astros ended up winning and eliminated the Yankees. You can make that argument, but game one or game two was like half empty in the stadium too. So, but anyway, go into detail in terms of that SeatGeek. Yeah, I haven't looked at it, but essentially the deal was like you can buy a ticket to a Yankees game, game four, they're down three nothing. But I mean, it's ALCS. I mean, this is, you know, winner of the series goes to the World Series. And it's the New York Yankees, it's the most popular baseball team in the world, one of the most popular sports franchises in the world. You could like buy a ticket for what, like 30 bucks? Mm hmm. 20 bucks. 20 bucks. Yeah. Well, Doug, you and I went to game six of the World Series in Houston last year against the Braves. And I had fun. It was a good time and everything. But I thought that product was as boring as hell. It's so boring. It was the pinnacle. It was the deciding game in the World Series. I would be much happier going to a college football game than doing that. Even like a two-lane game or something lame like that was more fun than going to the World Series. I'll tell you what, though. I think football is getting boring as well because the commercial breaks are insane. Like a college football game lasts like four or five hours now. It's crazy. We went to a Pelicans game last night. You have to like basketball, but that's a great product because they get you they get you out of there in two and a half hours and you get a full game. That's why I like soccer too. Yeah. There's continuation. You're right. Especially in college football too, with you got these teams that it's constant scoring. Yeah. And then every scoring play is reviewed, every turnover is reviewed. It just takes forever. Yeah, I agree. So and the NFL just seems to be so bad this year as well, too. Maybe it's just because I'm a Saints fan. Yeah. College football is a little bit more interesting to me just because TCU's winning right now. Right. And Tulane is too. Right. Exactly. So, but anyway. Well, thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed, please share with your friends and family and colleagues. Give us five stars. Look forward to having you guys listen next week. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, 
Visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.